So, uh, welcome to episode 7 of the Digital Doctor podcast. Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, a topic that's close to our hearts, should doctors learn to code? So, um, with me, uh, we've got the usual suspects, um, Ed Wallet. Hi. And Steve Nguyen. Hello. Right, so let's just uh, kick it off. So, should doctors learn to code? And what is yeah. coding? First question, yes. Ed? Do you know, this is such a controversial issue that I don't even really know how to start talking about this. Um, so I think, first of all, which, you know, what is coding? What is coding not? And we're not talking about the coding of conditions. I think that's probably worth saying. There's, like the, there's like the coding of medical diagnoses. Yeah. So there's various coding systems where you can code medical diagnoses and payment by results in the UK means that you have to code things in a certain way in hospitals to get paid for them. Um, we're talking here about programming, writing programs, writing software, writing apps, writing whatever it may be. Websites. Websites, yes. And I, I guess it's a really topical thing at the moment because the Director of Patients and Information of the NHS Commissioning Board, Tim Kelsey, has announced on Twitter and on the press that he would like to teach clinicians how to code. And I think he was quite inspired by the idea over in America. I think it's called Code for America. And there are TED Talks and a website where where people are, if you like, changing and helping society by writing computer programs and i guess he likes to see that happening to our nhs yeah i guess we should probably i mean we're, we're going to obviously be biased and any idea that we're going to present a balanced argument is um maybe a wrong one um because i think we're all pro coding right and we're all pro doctors doing this because we're all doctors and we all want to or do dabble in this to certain degrees. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think the other issue is that we're also pro-sustainability. So, you know, I think traditionally, the, the you know, and pro-products that actually work like and actually make a difference. Um, mm. You know, I, I think there's two, there's two arms to this argument. That the first arm is that there has never been a better time in the history of computer science as a novice to pick up the basics and actually be able to do something and to do it well and to do it quickly. Mm. But on the other hand, creating something which is sustainable and is able to integrate with other pieces of software is never been more challenging because we have so much software. So almost one thing actually almost cancels out the other and creates something that's quite a problem set that's actually quite difficult um, to solve. And and I think reflect, reflecting on the fact that, you know, coding is not necessarily easy is some um, interesting statements that happened on Twitter during the Digital Doctor Conference. Um, somebody said, I'm sure doctors would not like me to do some amateur doctoring. So please, can you not do some amateur coding? Yeah, okay, let me, let me, <laughs> let me not try and get too upset about this, this line of, of logic. Um, because in the same way we, you know, the first thing is, should, so let's ask a different question. Should doctors who are qualified and working suddenly purport having read a few articles to be professional software developers? No. Should software developers having read a few articles about orthopedic surgery 
start doing hip replacements? No. However, is it not reasonable for doctors to explain to patients what's going on with them and educate them about their conditions? Yes, fair enough. And is it not fair enough for patients to expect that? And in the same way, is it not reasonable that doctors who are in the future going to be commissioning IT products um, or involved, certainly involved in their commissioning and thinking them up actually know something about how those things work? Fine. So, I mean, I think this argument gets completely... And this is, this is traditionally the ridiculous thing that is said by people to doctors who code. You can't possibly code, just like I can't do a hip replacement. Okay, well, most of the time, yeah, sure, that's true. You know, I wouldn't pretend to be... You know, actually, I can't do a hip replacement anyway, by the way. But I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pretend to be able to write, you know, amazing code. But I know enough to give me advantages over somebody who knows nothing. You know, so what I think is, is, is if you know a little bit about the basics of coding, about how to write something, how a piece of software is built up, then first of all, you're better able to understand what is possible. And that's the incredible thing, because you can actually have an idea in your head and have an idea whether or not that could be implemented and how the implementation might work. And the second thing is, if you want to take that idea forward, you're much better to communicate with the professional software developers um, who actually can take the idea forward. So the communication is going to be a lot easier. Um, and I think communication is really at the heart of all this because it's, it's well recognised that actually it's quite hard to articulate the process of healthcare. And that's why a lot of um, healthcare IT systems are built so badly because I think the the developers don't fully understand what people want and how we deliver healthcare. And, and, but if a clinician can actually articulate that in a way that the, the professional software developers can understand, it will inevitably lead to better software. Um, and I think there's actually some um, historical precedent to this. In fact, if you look at, let's say, EMIS, which is the, the leading GP um, software that is used in, in the NHS, it is actually um, founded by doctors who code. In fact, they wrote the first few ones themselves. So, you know, clearly, doctors who code can create software that is successful and can be used. What about the DICOM format too? Was that by doctors as well? Yeah, well, apparently so. Well, I'm led to believe. And of but course, I you've got. I haven't read the Wikipedia page. So I have no idea if that's actually verifiable. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the um, Veterans Health uh, Veterans Health Administration um, IT system that is used in the US by I think a population of eight million or thirteen million people. They were originally written by doctors as well, and now it runs a whole health system. So there's something to be said about understanding the 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 having having a deep understanding of the process of delivering healthcare and how to create tools to actually support it. So I'm going to do my usual thing here, and it's not because uh, uh, not because I want to be pedantic, uh, but I'm going to recapitulate everyone's arguments just to make it easier for myself to understand. So what I guess we're saying is that uh, learn doctors who know how to program can act as an intermediary to translate what needs to happen on a medical level to what might or what needs to happen on a technical programming level. 
I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've actually built my entire career now upon that exact statement. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there was something else you said that I thought was interesting that I thought I'd just sort of rehash to you and throw out there. What was it? Can't remember. I don't know. But um, I guess the the other thing to, to reflect upon, which is that as healthcare delivery becomes more and more digitized and the way we deliver healthcare becomes constrained about with, with the digital tools that we use, it means that the software will start determining how we work. And if we don't have influence over how the software is designed how, and the direction that it goes, if we become we will reach a really horrible situation whereby IT systems start determining how we practice medicine. And when that starts to happen, I think we are in a very dangerous place. I think that's already started to happen. I mean, if you go back in some of our previous episodes when we're talking about things like blood systems, you know, when we were talking about the situation where your IT system is so clunky that you're ending up copying out the blood results that you're given on the screen onto a piece of paper or a chart off the screen... You know that the, 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 you know you're fighting against it. Um. Yeah. No, I mean uh, that's a really good point, and I mean I remember what I was going to say actually. And Ed, you made the point that there that actually creating something there's a really low base to entry to create something that works, but actually integrating that into proper systems is very very difficult. So what you end up with is a sort of two-tier system. So if doctors were to produce programs themselves, they'd be able to get them up to a certain level but wouldn't be able to go to the next step. And there'd be another sort of level where you'd get people who know how to write the enterprise-level programs for the NHS but won't really understand the doctor's thing. So going back to your point, Wacon, communication really is essential between those two kind of levels. So how, how so if, I, if a doctor wanted to learn how to code, I mean... Uh, where where do they even begin? Like, I guess it's pr- probably worth um, telling our listeners about, I guess, our proficiency in coding. So for me, I can say that I, I effectively cannot code. But in the last year or so, I've learned a lot more about, you know, what code is and the different things like databases, things like frameworks, programming languages, high level, low level. I have more understanding of that. But I, I really certainly can't produce anything. What about you, Stephen? I'll do a little bit, yeah. So um, I can. My main motivation in programming is websites, because um, I wanted to start a website. So I learned how to program lots of different technologies to be able to produce a workable website. And through that, I learned that you can make web applications. And for everything that I kind of need, that was that was enough. But I've not gone further than that, so I've not I've not ever made a native app for any kind of device, mm. whether that be a computer, a mobile phone, or a tablet. But Ed, you're slightly different. You do both, right? Yeah. Um, so my I basically spend most of my time nowadays writing code. So um, mainly. Actually, 50-50, I'd say it is now. So web-based applications um, using technologies like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Ruby on Rails is my server-side language of choice and increasingly something called Backbone, which um, is a bit of JavaScript that makes things in the web behave like they do on the desktop. 
and um, and then a lot of what also I do is in, in mobile applications. So I'm able to write iPhone apps, iPad apps, um, things like that um, as well, um, and and do. So I mean, there's really many facets to writing code, like don't you think? I mean, where would you start? And if and if I think I know the way that I started. If you were to start again, I think I'd probably do it slightly differently. I think I jumped too much into the deep end by trying to follow a tutorial that had lots of different technologies all thrown into one another. And whilst the learning curve and that was amazing, what I found myself doing was kind of copying what the tutorial was saying. It was a video tutorial. So I was almost sort of copying the code that they were writing down into my own text editor. And I didn't really find that I learned very much that way. I mean, I got used to the syntax, which in programming is is essential. I mean, you without learning the syntax you can't write anything and if you're missing a comma somewhere the whole program will may break so it's important to learn the syntax but actually i didn't really have a good understanding of what i was doing so i think if i started again i'd probably do it slightly differently if you could start all over again ed what what would you learn first so i don't think i would do it any differently actually interestingly so i think the what i did was i had a project so for me i had this thing called Podmedics, which provided videos to undergraduates. And I had my fingers burnt outsourcing and trying to get others to do it for me. And I just wanted to take control of it. And I needed to to build a web application, which was able to have users and sign-ins and serve materials and stuff like that. And I shopped around, did some Google searches and found a framework and then I found some tutorials. And what I did actually, and I think I, I've i been quite wedded to this, and I would recommend, and I do recommend to anybody if they're going to learn something, make sure you have a project that sits aside the thing you're learning. Yeah. So if you just dive in and open, go to W3Schools or something like that, and open up the tutorial on HTML, or open up the tutorial on CSS, or go to maybe tryruby.org and try some Ruby, you'll sort of get it for a minute but it won't stick mm, yeah in order to actually learn how to code you have to take abstract concepts that you learn from tutorials and things like that and almost reverse engineer them to create something that's useful to you yeah and i would actually say that learn not doing it in that way is a waste of time you just won't remember it so often I do get doctors coming to me and saying, I'd love to learn to code, where do I start? And I always say to them, okay, well, the first thing is, think of something that will be useful to you or useful to the team that you work in. And that can be very simple. Like often uh, we end up doing, end up advising people to create a simple website that is their CV, you know, putting their CV on a website as stage one, you know, and then that, gives them you know that gives them the opportunity then to learn a little bit of html a little bit of css maybe a little bit of javascript and then i say well wouldn't it be great if you could have a content management system you know and actually be able to without having to rewrite the detailed html be able to control what was on that cv and they say oh yeah so then maybe they start doing a little bit of wordpress and i said well, wouldn't it be great if you could actually craft it yourself and not have to use wordpress mm. and then you start getting into <laughs> frameworks you know like doesn't matter you know you could use laravel if you wanted to use php ruby on rails if you wanted to be use rails django if you were a python person um, it doesn't really matter what you use at the end of the day 
Um, but you need to have that project. If you don't have the project, then it won't stick. I guess I can vouch for that because I learned in the exact opposite way. So I, I mean, I, I bought a subscription to lynda.com um, knowing that I wanted to go and code things. And I wouldn't say it was all bad. I, I mean, I went through a lot of tutorials and looking back now, I really do wish I had something to apply it to because I spent most of my time learning and I, I loved it. It was fascinating. It was brilliant. And I could do stuff. And actually, at the end of the tutorials, I can actually probably make something very simple. But I think it's it's all about this repetition in memory. I think if you if you see something and then you have to apply it to a real-world situation, you remember it much, much better. And you get an idea for why you're doing what you're doing. So I really do, I mean, I've heard you say that before to people, particularly, you know, the, at the conference and stuff, and I really do resonate with that. And that's something that I, you know, I tell people now, that you have to have a project. And the main reason is you have to make mistakes. Yes. I mean, you're never going to be perfect. And the, one of the major ways you learn in code is by having an abstract idea, trying to implement it in code, and then trying to figure out where you went wrong along the way. And if you don't have that, that loop, then actually it becomes very tricky to get yeah. good at it because you need you know you need the muscle memory you know i know you were saying earlier Stephen, about copying lots of code that other people have written you know but actually that's incredibly useful um and there's a whole series of um of guides for learning programming languages called learning ruby the difficult way learning python the difficult way hard and way, the hard way whatever it may be yeah. and the reason it is the hard way is because basically to learn a programming language you just have to copy hundreds and hundreds of lines of code and understand how they work but you need to copy them because when you copy them you make mistakes and when you make mistakes you then go back and look at what you've written and try and figure out what's wrong with it so you do sort of introspection i think learning how to debug is is probably the biggest thing in programming and we'll probably come to that a bit later but debugging and and working out why things don't work or where you could refactor something is uh is almost the key to programming i think I thought I thought was, um, when you described how you learn uh, programming, Stephen, I thought you painted a perfect picture of how doctors learn. How doctors learn is that we learn their theory, then we imagine how it's done, and we watch other people do it, and finally we get our first chance to do, you know, your first cannulation or your first examination of someone's chest. You feel like you have to do it perfectly the first time. But I think the advantage about programming and coding is that you can actually afford to learn as you go along and afford to make the mistakes. Because you can go and correct it. Whereas you don't have that ability to do that in medicine because the you know the risk of cutting something out instead of the appendix is, is so much higher. So people who draw the parallels between programming and, and being a doctor, I think just don't get that these are two very se- separate things. Yeah, I wanted to say that earlier, actually. It's a really good point. As in, like, if you're doing an operation on someone, the stakes are a little bit higher than pressing Command and R and seeing some th- a web page refresh <laughs> and not work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then, and also the thing about to be able to express your idea um, in code and to write a prototype, then to show a professional what you're trying to do, you cut through so much of the communication barrier as well. So the ability to to prototype something. Uh, in code, I think it's it's a very valuable tool, and then you know the professionals can again take over and write it in a much much more elegant way that works a lot better and more reliable. Yeah, and, that, and believe me, that is exactly what happens. So when you hear about all of these doctors who write code, and I, I mean I include myself in that group, you know if if the stuff that sometimes the stuff that I write, um, 
I simply use it as a way of spiking an idea. You know, having a look into the space, having a, an exploration of an idea. And then actually, when it comes down to it, you know, that's quite useful, but that often won't be the thing that actually goes into production if the idea is successful. Um, and you'll find that. I, I guarantee you that very little of the core EMIS code that was written by those first mm. doctors exists anymore. It would have been hashed up and rewritten by various, you know, CTOs over the years uh, in, in the company. And that's how it should be. You know, that's, that's part of the joy, I think, of... Of, of, of computer of you know working with computers nowadays is that actually that the, the as i said earlier the the bar for entry is so much lower that you can really you can have an idea and you don't have to go out and try and get four million pounds and a team of 20 people to even you know begin to think about it you know you can get started right now in your browser you want to create the next greatest patient list to solve all of the junior doctors problems in the uk just do it. Just open your browser, start experimenting, create it simply in HTML and CSS, then add something else, then add something else and see where it takes you. But then the the, argue, the corollary to that is that a lot of people argue that why do you have to learn how to code to do that? What you need is a, a, a business analyst or something to effectively convert what you how you work and what you've described into a way that people can then program it and change it to code. What is the extra advantage of you hacking around creating a prototype? Because you, you, you know, I can't believe you just said that, but you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> but you, you, you explore the space and you yourself, your idea changes with the techniques that are possible. Hey, listen, business and creating something useful to people is very, very different. And often companies that do well regard them as one and the same but 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 almost their priority is let's create something that's really great for people and you find their primary motivation is to create something that works and something that's really good to use and if they can make money at that then that's great but actually getting a business analyst who has the priorities of making money before you have a really good idea well, no, I think, and no, i'm not talking i'm talking more about business analysts as in the people who actually examine the process and then be able to define the process so that that can be coded you can see what but, i mean rather than sorry rather than people mm. writing business cases but why could yeah, but, that should be what you do yeah i mean as, how can someone who is alien I, I, I presume they're alien because otherwise you wouldn't call them business analysts but how can someone who's alien to both programming and medicine produce something better than someone who can speak both languages uh, but, but I guess suppose this is what happens, and I guess they they will they will specialize in that area, and this is their day to day job to be able to do that. In fact, I know a lot of IT companies, and this might not be a good thing, of course, that you know they have this intermediary between the software developers and the actual um, clients, and that's probably a really bad thing, because I guess that's how you end up with things that don't work very well. Do you know what's really scary, actually? Um... A lot of uh, a lot of people at my university at the moment are interested in cross collaboration. So, biology, for example, which is probably my my area, is undergoing a bit of a transition because there's lots of data in genetics and uh, and metabolomics and all sorts of things. And there are computer scientists and physicists and mathematicians coming to biology courses, and that's a little weird 
and a little scary, but also very exciting. Mm. And there, and vice versa, there are lots of biologists who are logging into like nodes and clusters trying to do computation. And that's also very weird and exciting as well. And I think I see a lot of parallels between those kinds of uh, ideas. You know, there's a, a really useful space. And the space is big data and biology are going to work really well together. And the parallel is that the NHS and the big sort of amount of data that we need to process and put together and programming go so well together that this is a, a match made in heaven. And we need to be looking towards this area if we really want to improve patient care. Because, I mean, coming up with a new drug is very difficult and very hard, but making sure the right person gets the right drug is an mm. easy, easy enough idea but a really difficult problem in practice. And, and mm. healthcare IT can definitely help with that. Or some of those problems. Making sure you don't make mistakes, checking things, making sure the right person gets the right treatment at the right time. Well said, well said. I mean... Wake on, what would you do if you could, if you could code right now? What, what project would you like to work on? Oh, very good question. Um, so, at, at the moment, one of my pet projects that I'm working on is this thing called cellcounter.com, and we'll put that on the on the show notes. And uh, it's I basically didn't know about a very actually. <laughs> you think so? Um, I'm it's really a very. I'm just winding you up. No, very... no, 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 no. I've got the idea. Sorry, Wake Young. If you can fork the project on GitHub and add it yourself, we will accept a pull request. How about that? Very good. Very good. But I guess my, what I what I want to be able to do, um, being a, a hematologist and a pathologist who stares down microscopes quite a lot, is to basically re-in- reinvent the way we use reference images to help with making a diagnosis. Because the problem at the moment is, if you look at a cell under a microscope, you think you know what it is. But you need to think of what it could be, and then go to the textbooks and look at diagnosis 1, 5, 6, 7, 8, 13, and 14. But that's not how the brain works. The brain kind of um, class images together on how they look like. And you want to be able to, to present your reference image in such a way that you can match images on the computer uh, and to the microscope. And at the moment, um, images are not organized that way. So if I learn how to code, I want to think of a way of how to um, organize images. How would you create a repository of images? How would you tag them? And how would you link them in a database in such a way that you can call, call up appropriate related images as and when the user wants, needs and wants it? I mean, that's what I like to work on. Uh, I'm not sure if I articulated it really well, but basically so, a complete, yeah. So would it be a website where people could find the image that they wanted, or would it be something that integrates with the NHS systems, so that whenever you looked at a, uh, a particular bone marrow result, you would get pictures of the cells? I mean, what? how do you see this working? How I see this working is that um, I look at a cell under a microscope, and mm-hmm. it looks a little bit like a plasma cell, but I don't think it is a plasma cell. So what I want to know is what other cells look like plasma cells. Okay, this is a bit of a misnomer, but what about a microscope heads-up display? And it's a misnomer because you look down into a microscope, usually. Yep. Google Glass. Google Glass for microscopes. That one's for free. That copyright Ed Wallet, 2000. No, no. 
<laughs> I, I, suppose <laughs> the, I, I guess the other things that I like to work on is a lot of the stuff that we've discussed in our previous shows, which uh, I just constantly ignored. But the more and more I, I kind of learn about, you know, technology and how it can support healthcare, I realize that, you know, technology is really one half of the problem, which is probably the easier problem to solve. The other big problem is trying to get our colleagues, that's doctors, nurses, um, secretaries, all to change the way they work. Change the way they work to allow technology to take over the menial automated task, to allow technology to help us make um, less mistakes. Um, and, and a lot of people feel very threatened by it, and there's a big inertia. And that inertia, to me, is a much bigger challenge than teaching doctors how to code. Okay, so I have this absolutely crazy idea. I want... Uh, uh, a, a course on coding, writing simple programming to be part of every undergraduate curriculum in the UK for medical students. I think that this is absolutely so important that if we want to see innovation, if we want to see people looking at problems and coming up with solutions in this space, then we need to empower people with the tools to actually start doing something in that space. And I'm not talking about turning every doctor into a computer scientist, not at all, but knowing a little bit of knowledge, and we as doctors should know this, you know, a little bit of knowledge goes a very long way um, in helping us to to do things. And just giving, giving somebody, you know, and just look at technology. You know, you can sit down now and build a website or build a simple web application with the technology that's available with not much prior training in absolutely no time at all you wanted to build your own e-prescribing platform that is a day's work away you want to build your own o portfolio e-portfolio you know that is not a long way away you know and i i think if we could just empower people to realize how actually how low that barrier is between their idea and actually getting something that works, um, we go a long way to actually improving the use of healthcare technology in in uh, in the UK, which is, to be honest, at the moment in a pretty dire state. But you can use the same argument to say that there should be a programming in any undergraduate, um, not only medicine, but just about anything. Oh, of course, I, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm deliberately scoping <laughs> myself to medicine because that's what we're, we're mainly concerned with. Scoping. He's full of the programming terms, isn't he? <laughs> no, but that's a really good point because um, I don't think you'll turn a generation of medics into computer programmers and I don't think you'll get loads of people leaving medicine. But I think you need to know how this thing works because it's going to be a big part of your life. Like, for example, as a doctor, I use email... Hmm... Okay, well, when I was a doctor working full-time on the wards, I probably used email around 10 to 20% of the time to manage what I'm doing, not only on the wards and for my patients, but also um, what I'm going to do for my career and what I'm going to do in my research life, that kind of thing. And no one's ever shown me how to do email, apart from Merlin Mann on his Google Tech Talk. God bless and Ed And Ed Wallach. Um, but... I think no one ever teaches you that, and that's a useful skill. It's a soft skill, but it's a skill that's fundamentally necessary to do your job. Just as fixing the printer on the ward, no one ever told me how to do that. But that was, as an as an FY1, fundamentally useful for doing my job. But no one ever gets taught that. I'm not suggesting you go and teach everyone how to put a computer together and fix printers. 
But you've got to think that when the limiting factor in getting the ward wound up and running is fixing the printer, that that should be something that, that people should know about. And actually, I came into an interesting problem. The first, um, my FY1 year, the first surgical job I ever had, I was working with a girl who was from Africa. And she was a great doctor. She had lots of knowledge. But she couldn't use, because she hadn't used it, she couldn't use Microsoft Office. And the list was on Microsoft Word. And that was a massive, massive problem. And she hadn't been shown at medical school because she went to medical school. She didn't go to, like, computing school. But it seriously, seriously impacted on how she did her job and probably impacted on the, the care of her patients too. So those kind of things I think we need to we need to take heed of. And that was kind of the whole impetus of the conference, maybe. I mean, I wanted I wanted to do it for those kind of reasons. Yeah, I think, the, the, but that's not so much about programming, but just about getting comfortable with technology and seeing how to maximize the tools that, te- the how to maximize the digital tools that we use. And I, I completely agree, this might be a topic for a different show, but, you know, no one teaches you how to use email properly. No one even teaches you how to use the electronic patient record system that you have to live in every single day properly. That's because they don't know how it works either. <laughs> but, you know, and I think, you know, talk about programming undergraduate i think that you know digital skills are so key now to the way doctors work that in 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 the undergraduates they should teach people how to type oh absolutely i was just about to say yeah i mean i think it should be there should almost be an exam for touch typing as part of the medical finals i mean i think not being able to type fast and accurately is almost you know as bad as not being able to you know recognize this condition or that condition you know in terms of efficiency because if it takes you, you know, five times as long to type a discharge letter as someone else who can touch type, then I'm sorry, but you, you, you're, not, you're not really very much use. And then even simple things like people do not know how to copy and paste with the keyboard. They don't know how to press tab to go to the next field. They don't know that you can press enter instead of moving the mouse to click. I mean, these are basic, I mean, forget about coding. These are basic skills. And... And more, more and more of the way we work is going to be on the computer. And these very basic things people don't have. It's going to be completely on the computer in the next, you know, almost 100%. As and it should be. I just, I just you know, I, I think it is a massive, massive oversight not to include these things in the medical curriculum. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so well, I mean, you think that digital literacy as a subject should be included into the curriculum, but I mean, there's, a, there's ever amounting pressure for, for students to learn different things as medicine, as a specialty, and, and, and that obviously includes surgery um, and, and all other medical specialties expand. But I guess what we're saying is that if you can find your way around a computer, you have access and the capability to teach yourself virtually anything. So digital literacy should be a fundamental skill that you should learn to not only complete your medical degree, but to be able to teach yourself for the rest of your life. It's, it's empowerment. And I always go back to my mum and my grandma and all of these um, examples. But, you know, and, and also to myself, like when you first start using a computer, you need a, you have a set of instructions sitting next to you saying, in order to get to email, turn the screen on. Then click on the button that says email. Then click get mail. 
okay? And when, for your first few hundred things that you do on a computer, you need those instructions. Mm-hmm. But after a while, if you attain those digital, digital lit- literacies, if you like, actually what happens is, and actually it's very, it's the same almost with learning medicine as well. You almost, you don't need those prosaic instructions anymore. You can figure out what to do mm, in any yeah. given situation, even if a totally new situation mm. is thrown at you. Because there are certain paradigms in the way that systems and the way that computers work. But is that not a moot point now these days? Um, Because, I mean, children are growing up with these things. I mean, I grew up with, you know, the Atari and the ZX Spectrum. And before that, there was nothing for me. But children are growing up these days with iPads um, thrust into their hands as as soon as they can physically hold them and and the iPad mini is pretty light these days you you imagine children getting into their hands pretty soon and there's that school in Scotland where they were giving iPads to to kids have you heard about that? yep Um, and they thought that the younger kids wouldn't be able to grasp the concept so they didn't give it to the younger kids they gave it to the older kids eventually they ended up giving it to the younger kids but the younger kids also took to it like water and they had to do these um, classical um, computing lessons where they use a keyboard and they're all complaining, you know, why can't we just touch the screen like we do with the iPads? Why Why do we have to why do we have to go and, and physically push the keys down? So maybe that's a moot point, but there are, certain, there are definitely certain ways of working and maybe coding's part of that that we should be teaching to, to medics. It should be a part of the course. But so what we're saying is, I guess, we should be learning coding and the reason that doctors should be aware of this is so that they can communicate better and um, there's a whole other host of reasons. And part of communicating better might be to spike a simple project to show what your idea really is like and to sort of hash out your ideas. Um, so that's very good. Um, but how would you actually go about it? Let's sort of move on to that for a while. And we spoke about how I learn and Ed about how you learn. But if you had to do it all again, you probably wouldn't do it very differently. But what are the sorts of things that people need to go about learning to be able to to program successfully okay so they need first of all they need they need a project and it must be personal to them and it can be incredibly simple but that you do need something which is meaningful to you which you can apply the principles that you learn um to start and then you need resources and you know whatever those may be when i first started learning i had audio podcasts now there is not really a worse way to learn computer programming um, than listening to audio podcasts describing code. Um, but, you know, it worked. And I listened to them and I, I thought about the concepts. I thought about, I never come across this idea of models before. What is a model? How does that work? You know, what is a controller? What is a view? You know, what is a web request cycle? You know, but it enabled me to to at least listen, under, try and understand the concepts and think about those things in the context of what I actually um wanted to do uh, so project is key resources now what resources now you know we are incredibly fortunate at the moment you know and, and this is all part of of the whole web explosion to have the most amazing resources available um for learning this stuff just starting at the most absolutely basic level if you want to right now go and learn about html css javascript sql you can go to something called www.w3schools, um, I think is the address. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can wa- you can watch short, ch- not watch, but read through short tutorials on all of those things right now. 
and actually they've got code challenges and things where you can bring up a panel and experiment with HTML and CSS and JavaScript and see all that sort of stuff working. Um, there are much bigger projects um, in the space as well. Uh, a couple of popular ones are Code Academy, mm-hmm. um, which provides lots of courses in lots of different languages uh, with uh, in-browser challenges, stuff like that. Uh, one of my favorites, and I know Stevens as well, and one of the sponsors actually of the Digital Doctor podcast was a company called Treehouse, um, whose vision is essentially to teach everyone in the world web design development and app development. Um, and they've got a really fantastic product, amazing videos, great challenges. Um, and I'm not just saying that because they sponsored us. You know, I, I, I learned an absolute ton from them, you know, and I think that's probably one of the best 30 odd quid a month I've ever spent. Um, and then, you know, there are more advanced things out there. Um, I mean, I think the really exciting thing for me as someone who spends most of their day writing code is that there is such a community like you can, you know, on Stack Overflow and all of these different sites, Mm. you can basically, it's now got to the stage where there's such community that you can type the error code that you get in your situation, writing a piece of software that's relevant to you into Google and you will find someone else has had the same problem and find a discussion surrounding that. Yeah. And that, I think that's absolutely amazing. I mean, that comes back to our debugging conversation. And I think part of learning to program is in, let's pretend, for example, you've learned the basics and we'll probably come on to what you need to learn to be able to, to, um, to program successfully. Uh, depends on what you, you want to do, of course. But I mean, one of the essential elements that, that, that features in every kind of programmer's daily life is finding out new stuff. So the programming community is wonderful. And I, one of the great things that I really loved about programming was actually the community surrounding it. So things move on really, really quickly. Everyone's looking for a better way to sort things out. There's a big emphasis on open source and people doing stuff for free for the love of it. And people maintain and spend several, several hours a day maintaining a particular piece of code that f- just for the, f- for the sheer enjoyment of other people using things they create. And that's really nice. So the program community are wonderful and you can learn a lot from them. Probably one of the other reasons to learn programming as a doctor is that actually you can apply some of the things that you learn from programmers into your daily life. And whether that be, whether that mean you're an academic or, or a doctor, some of the ways that they do things are very methodical, very logical, and they've been tried and tested. And they follow this sort of evolutionary agile process that if something doesn't catch on, then it will go undergo evolution or die a death. You know, natural selection does really apply to programming stuff. So the community is great. And um, I, th- I think that's one of the, the great things that you can learn from, co- from, from coding. I suppose if I were to do it all again, I would, as you say, Ed, have a project. Um, but I would learn some basics first about Unix and the terminal. I don't know mm. if you would. And I, I probably, maybe we should talk to you, Wake Young, because I know you're thinking about trying to do a bit more of this, and maybe we should be giving you direct advice, but you're on a Mac, right? And I can't I'm really say, yeah, and I can't really say much for, for those who are on Windows. 
But you don't need very much these days. You need either a Ubuntu machine, a Windows machine, or a Mac machine. You can start programming. It's probably easier, from my perspective, to talk to those who are on a Mac or a, or a Unix-based operating system like um, Linux or Ubuntu, something like that. Um, I would start learning what Unix is and how you can get around the file system and the different folders and all of that kind of stuff before you did any kind of programming, because that's because the, going to be interacting the, with that. Because, I because the, one, the more I see about how people organize things in programming, it's very similar to the kind of structure, how Unix is organized, isn't it? Like yeah. the directory structures and things. And I guess that if you have that concept in your head, you know, then, then it, it, it helps a lot. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think you should start with which, which whatever gives you dopamine. So you should start with the thing that makes you feel that you've achieved something. So you should start with, you know, being able to open a text editor, write, hello, my name is Y Kyong, and see it on the screen. Something that you've written appearing in a web browser, something that you've been using for years and years and years, but have never been able to influence in that way. And then you wrap it in some HTML and suddenly it's really big. You wrap it in an H1 tag and suddenly hello from Y Kyong is really, really big. And yeah. then you write some styling. Maybe you mm. make it, you know, blue or something. And yeah. it looks even... And so each time you're doing that, you say, oh, you're, you're, you're sort of saying, very oh, visible, that's it? how it works. And that's, that's how this is going on. And then you might add another paragraph. And then before you know it, you've written your own system to, to, to put on the page whatever you want through a sort of WordPress type interface. You know, so yeah. I, I see it as a constant evolution. So... Just to give an example, when I started learning to program, I was all about like I, I hate I wanted to build a patient list. Mm. Okay, so I started by writing a patient list in HTML, the most basic building block of the web. And of course, it was completely static, but it was a patient list, and it was on the screen. And I was like, "Wow, that's so much better than on in an Excel document or in Word." Okay, how can I make it look pretty? So then I learned a little bit of CSS. And I thought, well, how can I make that sort of animate in and out? So I learned a bit of JavaScript. Mm. And I thought, well, actually, this is pretty rubbish because it's all, like, coded. Wouldn't it be great if this was backed by a database? Mm. And then I needed a web application. Mm. So you see how, you know, you take baby steps into your problem, starting with the most simple thing, but learning new techniques as you go along. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not long before, actually, you arrive at the place that you want. And the interesting thing is it's an exploration. So actually, <laughs> you end up, through starting in this way, you end up often going off in a direction that you never knew was even possible because of the skills that you're learning. But, I think this... but, but isn't that process quite long? You know, I'm a very impatient uh, person. Uh, you know, I, I have an idea in my head. I want to put it down uh, and create something straight away, but I can't even... You know, I, but I know that to do that myself, I'll take like four or five months to get there. Wouldn't it be better that I just learn the skills of how to communicate to someone who will be able to translate this into something? But you, you can't know? learn. I'm sorry, but you can't learn those skills without actually experiencing it yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, you think maybe that we disagree on those points, but actually everything you said, I was like nodding my head constantly during what you, what you were saying. And I, I think exactly the same way because there's this idea of a web stack so that everything's built from the bottom up. I think at the bottom of that stack is Unix. And 
okay, you don't need to learn that to, to start, but I think it's a nice place to start. And you can do all sorts of fun things like how would I rename a file in Unix? How would I copy mm. and move text around? How would I append to a file? Sure. How would I change the permissions on a file? That's all really useful. And as you said, dopamine, like programming is really, really addictive and that's part of the appeal. So it's not working, it's not working. I'm really frustrated and you work up why and then you refresh and everything works and it's great. That is, that really is, is. the best thing. I mean... That's the most wonderful feeling. That that moment when you, you know, you've had this abstract idea and you've been struggling for hours and hours and hours to get it to work and it suddenly works and you understand why. You understand, and it's very medical. Like, you know, it's almost like the diabetic who feels unwell, who is suddenly able to understand that the reason they're feeling unwell is because of hyperglycemia and if they take insulin, that will reduce and and, and, and they'll feel better because of the change in the osmotic gradients and all that kind of stuff. You know, that suddenly you get that insight and that, that is an absolutely wonderful feeling which drives you forward. And for me, that was, you know, I, I, I say that I'm addicted to code because I, yeah. I think I probably am because yeah. I, you know, I run a, I run a, medical IT company um, and you know I have enough contracts that I really shouldn't be doing any coding like I should be managing people and doing this stuff but I can't stop yep. so I have to write code like I, mm. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in being a manager and, and part of that is because I love that process I love meeting somebody or coming up with an idea thinking about it and then actually doing that and seeing it come to life yeah. So, guys, if I kind of change the conversation slightly, um, we asked the question, should doctors learn to code? So, how much doctoring should coders learn? Because I guess there's the corollary to this, which is that to imp- if we talk about communication, if the software developers are develop- developing this, come to join us on our ward round, see us interact with patients, speak to the patients to understand the problems that they face. And if they do that, you know, on a regular basis, I mean, they're doing this with healthcare managers now because they realize that, you know, after a while, healthcare managers do, do not see these patients set, you know, crazy, crazy targets for the frontline staff to, to achieve and, and interfere with our process of work. But the moment they actually come and see how we work and speak to the patients who are at the end of all this, it gives them a completely different insight and they will design different, you know, different systems. Would, would the similar thing not happen if software developers had this, you know, professional software developers come and gain insight to our world as how if we learn to code, we gain a bit of insight to their world? I think I, they have to be interested. No, I think they have to do it. Yeah. But I don't think they will. Do you think so? Because from my, you know, it's a lot. I mean, I'll I'll tell you why they won't. Simply because most, and I'm going to put my foot in it here, (laughs) but most, um, you know, most software development of new products is done outside of the NHS. And if you had to get software developers from outside companies to come in and shadow doctors for periods of time to gain insight, that would be very, 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 very expensive. And also, who would who would who would truly benefit? You know, the, 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 it, it, it's it's just not practical. It, it wouldn't be practical. I mean, I I just can't. I mean, in, having worked in that capacity, I, I can never see this. I can't see the situation where people who work for me would be asked to come into the NHS by people who were employing us 
and shadowing doctors for a period of time to gain more insights so we could develop a better product. I, I mean, I'd love to do it, but I just, I just, the, the, the environment would make it happen. You know what would be really great? Yeah, is if, on. I mean, you know, quality improvement projects and the, the PDSA, you know, plan, do, study, act cycles, if we could incorporate um, programming as part of that. So, for example, I agree with Ed. I mean, I think you're not going to, because simply because they don't need to, I don't think you're going to get many programmers offering to come on the wards and watch you do what you do. But I, I'm of the point of view that you cannot manage anybody and you cannot truly understand how their job works, even if it, you don't, I mean, I, I don't manage nurses and nurses don't necessarily manage me. But I think it's very useful for us to know what each other is doing to be able to work out how to do the same, how to work towards a common goal, which is looking after a patient. So I think that should happen. And I can really imagine a situation whereby the junior doctors leave this process and saying, look, we've got a problem on the wards, just one problem. I mean, there are lots of things in healthcare that we need to solve and IT can help with, but just picking one problem and saying, we need to solve this problem. And then speaking with the hospital managers, the nurses, and all of the stakeholders, getting in some programmers, brainstorming, going on the wards, the programmers taking in the process of auditing what actually happens, doing a paper trail of where things go, and coming up with a common solution that everybody can work towards. I think that sounds really ambitious. Maybe that won't happen. Well, I, th- I think that goes back to something simpler. So should all doctors learn to code? Yes, in an ideal world. But could all doctors be empowered with enough knowledge of coding in an hour to make them very powerful? Yes, as well. So, I'm, you know, even if like, I would like to see, for example, you know, a lot of a lot of hospitals have lunchtime meetings for doctors once or sometimes twice a week where, you know, they'll get uh, an audit presented to them or they'll get, you know, a journal club or whatever. You know, in an hour, I reckon I could teach a lot of stuff to doctors about how to describe a problem that they're having in terms that a programmer would understand. So for example, I think we talked about this actually in our last pod- podcast on the ePortfolio. There's this yeah. this language called, well, there's a couple of things. So there's the idea of modeling, you know, so who are the players involved in the problem? What are their attributes? What do they do? And then there's also the idea of this language called Cucumber, or actually I think the language is called Gherkin, which is basically saying, you know, as a user, I should be able to add a patient to my list. You know, simple things like that. But actually, when you create these rules of describing things, suddenly you break down barriers between people. Suddenly you haven't got an arguing group of doctors and computer programmers trying to understand each other around a, a table. You've actually got people constrained by the same rules talking in the same language. Do you want to do that? Do you want to go, you and I, maybe maybe someone else who does development, go into a hospital in an FY1's teaching period, do a bit of teaching about coding? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I, 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 think, I think it would be not really scalable for me to do it individually on the ba- <laughs> all around the but country. But as, as an experiment? Yeah, I, I do. And I think that, actually, I think it would... It, it, I would be really interested to do it in one place with a bunch of enthusiastic people and see what came out of it. Because I reckon people would walk out and they would immediately start writing down ideas and in these terms and actually trying to get them done. Because suddenly they're empowered. 
Can I also suggest that the place to do it would be in an organization that would be able to actually respond to some of these ideas and not yeah. in organizations which are have their hands completely tied. That even if you had a really simple idea that required two line changes of code, they have five contracts that prevents you from doing that. So I'm, interested, that I'm just, interested to hear what organizations this would be, right? <laughs> so, okay, I mean, the, the organization that, that comes um, straight to mind is any, any NHS organizations that develop their own software. Because they have the ability to actually change and make this kind of iterative changes. Still struggling. So, I think you're going to so, find very, very few. Okay, so so the, I mean, the, I guess the one that comes straight to my mind is the the Open Eyes project in Morefields. I think you have a good idea that you can actually influence how they design things. I think that's that's worth that's worth, and I think we're going to talk about uh, this project and this whole um, this open source electronic patient record at a future show. Um, you can go to. I think you know Christie's Hospital in Manchester. They 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 designed their own system for um, alerting uh, abnormal radiology results, which the clinicians are inf- heavily influenced. In fact, it was uh, coded by their own one of their CCIO himself with a team of developers. How does that uh, work? What was it? Just like uh, test X-rays, or was it so, go through an entire so, CT scan? So basically, what happened? Was, so there's a bit of a sort of. Peri appendix fat stranding or something. How does it? <laughs> so basically, what happened was the the problem was that abnormal scans were not acted upon. So they needed something to be able to alert people about abnormal results. So they went to look for some commercial um, software to solve this problem. And a lot of the radiology systems claim that they have software to make this work, but every single time he approached the actual company and said, right, take me to a place where this is actually being in use so that I can speak to them. In no hospitals did he visit, did any of this alerting system actually got taken up properly. So, and there were many reasons for that. So in the end, they decided to write their own, but in very, very close um, collaboration with their clinicians in their own hospital. And within, I think, within a few months, they have an up-and-going system that's used by everyone that people can can influence, that people like, which a lot of the other hospitals have failed to do. So, I mean, I think this is probably the subject for another podcast, but I'm completely, you know, even though I'll, you know, I would be out of work and out of a job and living on the streets uh, if, if all hospitals were to suddenly start developing their own software. That is the way to do it. Absolutely. But there are all sorts of very complex reasons why, and I know I will offend some people by saying this, and it wouldn't be the first time, um, that the best software developers... First time today. The first time today. The best software developers, unfortunately, do not end up in the NHS. Uh, I guess the other way of thinking about it is that perhaps there's a business model that people haven't thought of yet. The business model, which is that you are a software developer, you might work in that hospital uh, physically... But you might your your company might actually be an IT consultancy. So instead of contracting you on a project basis, they are contracting you to work for them in their company. A bit like how auditors go into companies, but you embed yourself within there. And with the and with the uh, the host uh, company uh, that will provide the software developers can can encourage you know interchange of skills, interchange of ideas, provide the continuous training. 
uh, to the software developers. Maybe that's a business model that hasn't been thought of yet. So yeah, on-site consultancy does work. It does happen, but it is yep. incredibly expensive. Is it? Yeah. Because think about it. You've got a consultancy, a group of people who exist out of a certain hub with all of their various reasons for working out of that hub. And you take those people who have chosen to work in that place and you relocate them somewhere else mm. um, and expect them to function in that environment. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it does happen, but it's very, very rare. But perhaps it's in the long run is probably actually cheaper for the hospital rather than them spending like 10 million pounds buying something which then they completely do not know how to use or or and and once it is implemented ah, they don't know how to But that's manage. a completely different question. That's a question of should NHS trusts be buying software from smaller medium-sized enterprises who are more agile and more able to deliver solutions that mm. suit their needs rather from large corporations who simply get befuddled by management issues in delivering these platforms and charge £300 to change the colour of a button in a web app I mean, for, for their own reasons and quite right because they have, they've got such a large infrastructure. And I think that's actually a very interesting topic um, and a very topical topic. That doesn't really make sense, but a topical topic <laughs> given the current uh, healthcare landscape. And actually, there, I think we are seeing, and I've certainly seen it in the work that I do in my medical consultancy, a move towards more procurement in the small and medium-sized enterprise market mm. um, for third-party software developers. Um, it, it, is, it used to be the case that if you wanted to get a contract in uh, or be procured for a project in the NHS, you had to show you know three years of accounts. Yep, yep, you yep. had to show millions of pounds worth of turnover. You had to have insurance premiums up to your eyeballs. Um, Stupid. Crazy. Uh, now they're looking much more at smaller companies, smaller number of people, lower insurance premiums, but people who are actually able to adapt to the needs of a project on the fly, rather than this very old model of spending four months writing a specification and then disappearing for a year and then coming back with a product which actually is completely different to the thing that was commissioned in the first place. But I think that that's not a topic for another podcast. Mm. So... Have we managed to come? So I guess for us, we we have um, we are slightly biased in our views, and we think doctors should code. But I'm but in in some ways, I think I'm less I'm less convinced of. Oh, sorry, I, I'm still convinced that doctors should learn to code, and I can see the benefits of it. But perhaps I'm actually, if you like, less um, sold on the on one end on the spectrum than I used to be a few months ago. Which is. Um, which is, I used to think that absolutely doctors should learn to code, and that's the answer. But whoa, 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 I now need yeah. to think that perhaps there's a med- intermediary, there's a medium that we should learn the language of technology, yeah, learn okay. the language of coding, learn ways of describing, and on the other end, hopefully educate the software that was more about the process of delivering healthcare. And then maybe that's an aim that is probably more more realistic and more sustainable for more people. So I guess you're talking about your own experience with uh, your cell cancer project. Oh, that's, in which that, you've, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly in right. Which, yep. In which you've been more of a conductor than mm. actually physically writing the code. Have, have you, just sorry to ask this question, but have you written a single line of markup or code for that project? He sent I've me written... a spec in markup, in, in markdown. <laughs> markdown. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll um, forward it to you. You'll love it. I I I have not written a single line of code um, for that website. What I have done, as you as you said, is I I kind of knew what was possible. Yeah, and I I could artic- I articulated the vision quite clearly. Yep. Yeah, and 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 worked with them. And in fact, what was interesting is that they knew solutions to problems, which I didn't know was possible because I just don't have that knowledge. But when you articulate the the problem very well and what you want to get there, um, the way that the program is written is just you know surprised me at how well it's done. I mean, and I guess uh, this is why I wouldn't have thought you, that. This but you don't know. You don't have any idea how well it's written, do you? You, um, you know how it works, but you don't know how well it's written. Will it scale? No, I don't. I, right. <laughs> will it blend? So, no, no. Will it, will it blend? <laughs> so I, I, know, I don't know how well it's written. Uh, you're right. Um, but, but I must say, though, that if I didn't have kind of basic knowledge about databases, about, you know, CSS or JavaScript, I, I don't think I would have been able. I don't think I were able to articulate it as well. Yeah, but sure. at the same time, I still have not written a single line of code. So you're proving the point that Ed and I were, were were sort of saying earlier that as a as a medical person, you should at least understand the language, or at least understand some terms or what's going on roughly under the hood of a web application or or, or any kind of programming, um, because it will help you do what you want and talk to programmers. So perhaps you don't need to actually physically code yourself, which is what you're saying. The argument you're putting forward is like you don't have to physically code something yourself to be effective in being in the health IT space, which I agree with. It's like code code awareness. Yes, but it's absolutely key though that you have a partner in crime who may not necessarily be a, a, a clinician or a doctor but who you can trust to be able to do all the other things like, is this a good quality? Would this scale? Is this the right approach? Let me just see if this domain name is available. Codeawarenessweek.com. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I agree with that. But going further than that, so if you're a doctor listening to this and you think you might want to learn to code and you've been persuaded by Wei Kyung's very persuasive argument that actually probably you don't, it's probably enough if you want to get something done to just learn how things interact and learn some of the language. I would say that if you want to go further, it depends on what your goals are. Mm. So personally, what I've got out of learning to code, I mean, Ed, you're slightly different because you've completely changed tack with learning to code from your desire to want to create good things for people. Um, for me, I think what I've learned out of coding is is phenomenal. So at the moment I'm doing research, for example, and my database that I use to collect research data on people is written in Ruby on Rails, and I wrote it. And it's not brilliant, it's not fantastic, but I have a rudimentary understanding of web technologies, a rudimentary understanding of programming in Ruby, then the Rails framework, and databases... And everyone else in my group is using Microsoft Access. Whereas I can go to someone's house, so I'm working on dementia, and a lot of these people live in nursing homes, or they're not able to come to the lab, unfortunately. So I can go out to their house, and I can take my iPad, and I've made it responsive, so it looks really nice on the iPad. So I can collect data on the fly, into my framework, anonymously, securely, and I know it's secure, because I built it. 
So you can do good things. Oh, I, you know, I mean, I'm not. I, I would love to be able to code because I, as well, you say, I'm quite a uh, time at the moment to tell the truth. I mean, it's in it, the thing is about being a clinician, I suppose, and being in training is that. Um, you've got your work that starts at 8.30 and you come home often at 6.30 and 7. Then you've got this big exam you sit next to spend another three hours um, studying and revising. And, and you know, and imagine if you had kids and other commitments. Yeah, I, I don't buy, sorry, no one who says time, I, I don't. I never buy that. So I, I believe if you really wanted to do it, you would do it. Um, anyone who said that time is always an excuse. Okay, Ed. Yeah, you have to. There's one thing you have to understand about Ed Wallet, and Ed Wallet is a sequential processing machine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Ed only does one thing at one time, and and don't read anything into his career trajectory about that. But but when Ed wants to do something, he does it and focuses on it, and that's very great. And I think that's what you have to do with programming. So I don't think you do two things at once. So. Um, I think you can have your job and you can have a, you can have a nine to five project. You can have a five to nine project, but I don't think you can have more than that. So whilst you're doing your exam, that's your five to nine to project. And once your exam's out of the way and good luck with it, I think then you can turn your attention to coding and that will be your five to nine project. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I'm even toying with the idea of taking a whole, whole year sabbatical and learn how to code because, oh, please you know, don't do that. Please don't do that. That is going to be the biggest waste of time. You'll go to some MSc at some bullshit university and you'll learn C++ and come out like a bloody monkey. Please don't do that. <laughs> come and I'll teach you how to code in a weekend. Okay, that's fine. Just Ed, please... You know, this, is, this isn't the after dark. This is like... But thanks, Stephen, for reminding me because uh, I agree. If I knew how to do the coding myself... I think that uh, the cell counter, for example, perhaps I will have experimented a lot more. That's for sure. And and you mentioned about data collection. I mean, we are all a bit data hates, isn't it? I, no, I mean, medicine is just full of data that we just don't use. And if I knew much more around uh, databases, I would have done so much more analysis and so much more audits uh, and, you know, Oh I would God, like to I just, dream. I'd like to ask you some questions, Waikyong. Go on. How long do you think it would take for you to learn? Okay, let's start simply. Okay. HTML to learn to write a web page. Basic HTML. Yeah. How long do you think? How do you how how long do you reckon it would take you to learn that? Well, I kind of know how to do HTML. Okay. Okay, so this is actually not going to work. This example, but <laughs> how long? I mean, you know. I could, you know, you can learn HTML in 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think that's a fair point. Uh, you learning... can learn CSS in another 20 minutes. I can right. teach I... you basic JavaScript in another hour. And you could learn Ruby on Rails in another couple of hours. Enough to write something that was database backed. And, you know, this, and enough, you could learn. The, the important thing with programming is learning enough to be able to self-sustain yourself. Mm. So mm, yeah. you learn enough about an area to be able to then not need anybody else to take yourself forward. And that point is probably about 10 to 11 hours in Ruby on Rails. And that's it. Really? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I, I, I don't, the thing is, I don't think, and this is one of the things that I'm so keen to get across to people. And from me, 
if people can take away one thing from from this podcast is that the barrier is almost a hundred times lower than what you think it is these are not difficult things to grasp and you can pick it up so quickly with the resources that are available to you as a relatively intelligent human being youtube even yeah the resources are vast and just with the stuff that we've recommended you know you will be flying and you know if you devoted a weekend to this a personal study you'd be able to build your own e-prescribing platform by monday i don't think people realize i don't think people realize how low that barrier is okay most ruby on rails tutorials and granted it's probably better that you know some rudimentary html css and javascript before you start most ruby on rails tutorials are around 12 hours so the lynda.com tutorial 12 hours long roughly um michael hartle's um learning rails by example tutorial around about 12 hours if you're screencasts most things around 12 hours peep code as well you know there's about maybe less maybe eight hours six or eight hours worth of of podcast but that's probably a bit quicker i think you should use a range of resources depends how you like to learn and i'm just going to splurt out there for everyone how I, if I were to do it again, I would learn, and maybe this is advice for you, Wakeyong, or not. But I would learn a little bit about Unix and what it is and what you're doing in the terminal, because most of your life as a, as a developer is going to be spent in the terminal. And I wouldn't worry about picking a language, other than I would pick a high-level language that's object-orientated. You're going to be able to do stuff. So the, the choices these days depend on what you want to do, and everything depends on what you want to do. So you're going to pick Ruby or Python. Okay, PHP and Perl are there, but actually these days, if you want to write web applications, you're going to pick Ruby, and if you want to do a bit of maths and research, that kind of stuff, you're going to pick Python. Mm. Depends on your slant. So I wanted to, my primary goal was to write websites, so I learned Ruby. And exactly as as Ed said, in this order, and he said the order twice, which I don't think he's consciously thought about that, but it's a natural progression. So I would learn HTML. So HTML is a markup language, Mm. and it sets out the content of your page. And then you want things to look nice, so you want to start them with CSS. So I would start with writing your name, your title as a doctor, and a bit of blurb of text in HTML. And then I would try with CSS to move that text into the center of the page and make it inside a gray box with a border in a really nice font that's in italic. And then I would use JavaScript, which you're going to use a lot in web development. And I ignored this, and I wouldn't ignore this. I would spend a lot of time to JavaScript, even though it's not strictly necessary, because I think it's the future. So I would spend a lot of time in JavaScript um, being able to dynamically modify your content. So mm. you can refresh the page and it will ask you, you have an alert box and an, an entry box to come up, what you want the text in your little markup because you can change elements on the page. So you can actually change an element based on the JavaScript and you can type something in. So you could change your name on a per page refresh basis. And then I would move on from that, exactly as I'd said, to learn a framework like Ruby on Rails, which is programming. So you're not really getting on to like programming and TED JavaScript really. So HTML and CSS, it's just coding, it's just marking up a page and making it look nice. Then I would move on to using JavaScript to change the elements. That will become obvious when you know a bit more HTML yeah. what an element is. 
but you could change the title or h1 for example with javascript and then i would move on to making things dynamic attached to a database yeah in which you need a framework like ruby on rails or django in python so i would do it in exactly that way the resources i would use depends on your budget okay so w3 schools i think every developer uses but just because it's there it's free if you're using rails rails guides i recommend those um yeah but you're gonna have to read them (laughs) and if you don't like reading then then tough i personally cannot uh, i don't think i can read fast enough to keep my brain interested so i prefer something that's moving on screen so i use lynda.com a lot and think find a membership which has now become treehouse Hmm. but you could equally use um youtube or peep code, or even Rails casts if you're interested in Rails. But actually, they're quite advanced. Do you find Ed intermediate to advanced? Yeah. For me, if I could put put people in one place, and it has nothing to do with our affiliation, but at the moment, Treehouse is the place to go because you can start at zero, and you can yeah. go to writing full iPhone applications, and the resources are really great. So, right. So this will be a good project after my exams. Yeah. Uh, I should also say, and actually this is maybe, we could talk about this just for two minutes. But I know that we've gone on for a bit. But, so I set up a, um, I mean, I, I don't, this isn't a plug in any way because the, we don't have any more spaces left on the course. So it's not a plug. But it's, it's interesting. So I, I set up a course called Doctors on Rails, which is a, a play on Ruby on Rails. Like, ha ha, programmers, very funny. Very people. good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I set up a lovely venue in central London and, you know, venues for small teaching courses are very expensive. So it had to be priced at the right point. Um, and we couldn't get anybody. Okay. So we had three or four delegates, you know. Um, so actually what, what ended up happening is out of a sheer fluke accident, I've managed to cancel the event and I'm actually holding it in my flat in London. Um, which is actually going to be really, really fun because there's like four or five people. It's going to be just amazing. Like it's a weekend basically teaching doctors how to write Ruby on Rails applications from zero to writing their own personal e-portfolio. Mm. Um, but I think it does say something about the landscape. Um, and that is, you know, that, you know, this, this course wasn't, if you compare it to other similar courses in terms of a whole weekend's course on location, with tons of, uh, you know, for, you know, for say MRCP or for MRCS or whatever practical exams, you know, this course is very comp- was very competitively priced, um, but there isn't the appetite for it yet, mm. um, and therefore I'd like to see going forward. You know, now that I've done that experiment, you know, as we spoke about earlier, I'd like to see, you know ideas about how can we in a in a in a more open way and a more engaging way get clinicians more involved in the intricacies of it to help to improve healthcare it can i can can i make an attempt at answering that yeah i think i think you you will learn something if you're able to apply the knowledge and by application of that knowledge you actually manage to do something uh make something better at the moment and the way our healthcare organizations are organized, you might learn, you might know how to write the most amazing, secure, stable web app, and you can't penetrate 
through the bureaucracy of getting it launched in your, in your own hospital. Yeah. I think when that breaks down, people will see a point of doing it because they say, oh, look at how cool and what my colleague was able to do because he knew how to do Ruby or Python or something like that. And then, no, I can't do it. And I think then it would spur me on to want to spend my weekend and spend my money to learn how to do it. But up until then, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be that, uh, that encouraged. Like if I was doing research and I was dealing with a lot of data, I would probably want to learn how to do programming in R or, or, yeah, or SAS sure. or something because then I can, you know, I have questions in my head that I want to answer and I can answer it myself. Whereas last year, where I was working in clinical analytics for, for, a, for a, a company, I was dealing with big chunks of data. I had ideas in my head and questions I wanted to test, but I need to then articulate this to the analyst who will code it. Because if I was able to just do it myself, you know, it, it, I think I would have achieved so much more. Yeah. That's um, your argument there for learning how to program. Mm. So I mean, I'd so, I'd like to see I'd like to see more open, um, you know, this first attempt couldn't couldn't be open for various reasons. But I'd like to see more open attempts to try and get a more detailed. I mean, we've obviously started doing this with Digital Doctor Conference, and I hope it's going to mm. continue next year, and we'll be able to deliver more of these sort of soft skills and some harder ones. And we've learned a lot of lessons from the last one, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'd, I'd like to see more an open approach to encouraging doctors to learn more of the details, particularly those who are interested in this. Mm. I mean, if, 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 if you, you know, as a doctor, just, just like Stephen was, you know, if you're tech savvy and you have an interest in this space, then what you can do is absolutely amazing. Exactly. And you yeah. don't, the barrier isn't very high. So I'd like to engage those people because I think that is a, there's a massive hidden chunk of people who could write the next mm. great electronic health record system who could write the next great patient list system, you know, who are actually hidden from us at the moment because they're not being engaged. So I don't know how to do that. I don't know whether we have to go off to F1s and teach them about Gherkin, whether we have to do free YouTube seminars on Ruby on Rails for doctors or whatever. But I think it's an interesting space. Like if you think about Facebook, for example, Facebook wasn't built when it was first built with the code that it uses today. And that's the iterative approach. I mean, yeah. like you don't have to be, you have to be a complete professional to be able to build a working solution. So don't compare whatever you think you might write to the best thing out there because that's unrealistic. Mm. You have to build the concept first, the minimal viable product. Get it working in a way that you think might illustrate what you want in a better way. And then you can ask other people to come in and help. And it's all about building a movement of people who are willing to work on your project. Yeah, and I've got and, a perfect example of that. So Y Kion contacted me yesterday for his cell counter project. And he <laughs> yeah. said, you know, I've got this way of counting cells on a keyboard, but wouldn't it be great if I could do it on an iPad? And he we had a Skype video thing and he brought he 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 pushed up his iPad and he put his fingers out on the iPad. And the only reason he was able to do that was because he understood and he even used the term multi touch interface. <laughs> was the fact wow. that he understood that the iPad was capable of detecting multi-touches and that there was a complete API available for mm. that. And if you hadn't known that, then you would never have come up with the idea. And I think that, that takes us almost full circle back to the beginning, which mm. is that unless you have some idea about what is possible, then your ideas are never going to 
be truly well developed. And, and I, I think, think, yeah. So I thought that would be a very nice way to end this episode. Um, um, and um, it gives us plenty of think uh, ideas for future episodes as well. So uh, I think it's signing off from us now. Bye. See you then. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Check for pulse.